Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to 007 by 7 the podcast where we are investigating the James Bond films seven minutes at a time. I'm John Engel. And I'm Mitch Bryan, and today we're looking at minutes 49 to 56, which begin with Bond telling Kareem to leave the assassination of Krilenku to him and end with Tanya entering the spectacular Hagia Sophia, followed by a sinister man in a black beret. In between, Krilenku is assassinated climbing out of Anita Eckbird's mouth, Bond returns to his hotel to find Tanya waiting for him in bed, and as they fall into each other's arms, are unaware they are being filmed behind a one-way glass. And today we are uh, welcoming, once again, friend of the show, Dr. Lisa Funnel, author of For His Eyes Only, uh, associate professor at the University of Oklahoma, where she teaches film and gender studies classes, and uh, in addition to her many other articles and work on James Bond, hosts a podcast called License to Critique. Hi, Lisa. Hello. Thanks for having me back. Did I get all that stuff right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a busy woman. You are. <laughs> yes. You are. <laughs> uh, so I always start by asking, do you remember your first encounter with From Russia With Love? Was it early, late in your Bond fandom? I honestly don't know. I can say that it's not one of those where growing up I watched it a lot. It was not one of the ones that was on consistent rotation. And you know, going back to watching it for the first few times, I always felt that it was just like kind of different, right? It wasn't formulaic. It wasn't like most of the other Bond films, but I feel as though my appreciation for this film has definitely risen in recent years. Really seeing the way that you have a film that's not being limited by formula. You have a film that's still trying to find its footing, still trying to define James Bond as a character and the key elements that that come to do it. And I think the the chunk of time that we're talking about in this particular podcast really has some of those key factors of like trying to identify and establish the identity of Bond and his relationships with other people. And so I feel as though this is a film that it doesn't get enough love, but I think it's getting an increased amount of respect in the Bond film canon, at least from me. <laughs> no, that makes total, total sense. Um, before we jump into these minutes, I want to uh, I want to do a couple of things here. Uh, the first being uh, I want to play a piece of music and see whether anybody knows what this is or can sh shine any light on it. We'll see if we can hear this. <laughs> ideas about that <laughs> nope. okay, I just picture Patty Duke you know dancing with her friends in the living room or so it sounds like library music kind of to me that is John <laughs> Barry see. doing yeah. the big safari from call me Buana oh, okay which we're gonna talk a little bit about and in fact speaking of call me Buana check this out 
out of jungle territory. They call me Wahana, from Kilimanjaro down to the sea. They call me Wahana, when the natives see me coming. All the drummers started drumming. A ceremonial welcome for me, the Dalla Wahana. Do you know who's singing that? John Barry. Bob Hope. Oh, is it? Bob yeah. Hope? I thought it was going to be a weird moment where John Barry did some vocals. <laughs> What's so Bob strange Hope. about both of these numbers is they're um, both credited to Monty Norman. <laughs> and of course, Monty Norman contacts John Barry to help him orchestrate. And then turns around and hires Muir Matheson to do the final orchestrations. So once again, John Barry gets kind of aced out by that crafty Monty Norman in a mm. film that's uh, produced by Eon Productions and features pretty much everybody from Dr. No immediately after f finishing Dr. No went on to work on Call Me Buana. Uh, and then once that was done, turned right around and went back to work on From Russia With Love. So that's our right. music trivia portion of the show. Thank you very much, everyone. We did, <laughs> we did poorly on the music <laughs> trivia, for sure. I lost. <laughs> we all lost, maybe. Uh, so anyway, we'll jump into these minutes on this um, scary Istanbul street, which uh, Fleming says in the book is haunted by the ghosts of the dead and that Bond is afraid he's not going to ever make it out of Istanbul alive. Um, and equally sinister, I guess, is the fact that as they were trying to film these scenes, they had so much trouble with crowds that they finally mm -hmm. called uh, the government, and the government sent two guys from the secret police who drove up to the crowds, pulled four people out, put them into a car, drove them off to jail, and apparently the crowds dispersed, and there was no problem after that. Wow. How about that? Ter yeah. Terrence Young says he did go the next day and get those guys out of jail, but... <laughs> oh, how kind of him. Yeah, don't you think, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and also, I think the other thing about this that I did notice, I went back and reread the, the chapter that kind of connects with it, and it's Karen Bay who's got the cool, tricked-out gun, and mm -hmm. all Bond does in the whole chapter is just basically offer up his shoulder for it. So there's none of this business about, you know, I'll pull the trigger for you, uh I, you know, uh, no matter what's wrong with my arm, I have to be the one pulling the trigger. There's none of that right. business, which probably falls into this thing that we've been noticing about how the, the filmmakers are constantly trying to give James Bond a little bit more to do in all of these scenes. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, there's, they created something happening between them in the scene, too. If it's just Karen Bay has a gun and that's it and Bond offers his shoulder, there's not much. It's not a very dynamic scene. You know, having a little back and forth is helpful there. <laughs> I definitely want to talk about, though, this thing that's a rather, I mean, it's kind of a cliche in, in, uh, in macho, old macho movies is the, I have to be the one that pulls the trigger. I have to be <laughs> the one that gets them, you know. It's always been around. In this, and in this case, it just feels a little off to me uh, that Karen, Karen Bay has this vendetta against this guy. That's fine. But in the end, don't you just want him dead? Am I too much of a pragmatist? <laughs> Isn't it like the most economic way, the be the best chance of actually it killing him? Isn't that what you want? Not taking such a chance as I have one shot with a bad arm. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, but I have to be the one to take it out of pride. I don't know. 
What, what do we think about that as far as a movie trope and how it works in this uh, particular scene? Well, I think it's really interesting because what the scene does before that moment is there's a whole dialogue about friendship, right? Where Crimbe is like, you know, uh, something about being in your debt. I'm too much in your debt, Bond. And Bond's like, you know, how can a friend ever be in debt? And there's this this emphasis on the blossoming friendship between these two men. And when we think about Fleming and Fleming's writings, he often wrote about male homosocial relationships in his books. And homosocial refers to relationships between people of the same gender. So they're not sexual or romantic in nature. Usually it's friendship, mentorship, things like that. And so in the novels, there's a lot of like platonic love that Bond expresses for M, Lighter, and of course, Karim Bay. And so I feel as though there's this emphasis on the connection that trust um, that is built between this men. And then that feeds into this idea of like having Bond with a license to kill. Um, and I want to talk about him putting together his the gun in, in a second. But having, you know, this, this such a connection with this man that he's willing to sort of step aside and offer mm -hmm. his shoulder and allow this other man to take the bloody shot, right? Um, it yeah. seems very out of step with what a trained assassin might do. But if the scene is coded with friendship, it seems to be something that a friend might do. So I've read it through the lens of friendship. Right. That's good. Uh, yeah. I, I was going to say, as you were talking, I, th I thought, yeah, you know, he gets it. Bond understands this feeling mm -hmm. too, right? This is the kind of thing that he would, if he had a vendetta against a guy, he would want to pull the trigger too. So no argument from him because they get each other. So yeah, that's good. And oddly in the book, Bond is very upset by this idea of watching somebody get killed in cold blood, which kind of surprises me given what we know about Bond's first two kills from uh, from the book Casino Royale. And one was a pretty cold-blooded sniper shot from a distance, but yet uh, he feels uh, he feels uncomfortable with this idea of cold-blooded murder, and Kareem has to almost turn him around with a big speech about how people on the other side are way more ruthless than we are and that the, that uh, the English are, are showing their gums instead of their teeth. And, and by the end, Bond's like, yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, it's a mm -hmm. good thing he killed him. Well, it definitely doesn't bother Bond in, in the movie. Nope. Like he's, he seems to get a little, I don't know, there's a, a little bit of a smirk and obviously there's a smart, you know, the, the one-liner that comes after. But the look on his face is pretty cold after the, after the guy falls to his death and yeah it's just well it's classic movie bond does not is not troubled so much by those kind of things yeah, i guess exactly what were you going to say about the gun lisa you know i found it to be really fascinating because you know they're having this conversation about like you know and showing their friendship and then we just see bond in like this medium or medium close-up shot literally just assembling the rifle like it's a whole i don't know how many seconds worth of it but it, it's going from from piece to piece and putting it together and it not only looks kind of cool i mean you get that more so like in action films today right you mm -hmm. have to demonstrate your knowledge of weapons this is you know a precursor to every other film kind of pretty much doing it all the time but it's really defining Bond in terms of his touch. And haptics plays a critical role in defining Bond in the novels in the early films. So like in Dr. No, we don't actually see Bond at the poker table right away. Instead, we see him in shadow and silhouette. We see the cigarette smoke. We kind of hear his voice. But we're watching his hands playing the game. And so 
this notion of, of haptics touch has always played a role in like starting to define Bond. And then when we think about from Russia with love, you know, when Bond's inspecting his his first hotel room, he's looking around, but he's using his his hands as well, right? He's touching and feeling different items in order to ensure that things are safe. And so haptics has always played a role in these early Bond films. And I feel as though this is just another manifestation of it, showing him putting it together, being capable, being being competent, knowing he's the 007, the license to kill. He's a killer who understands the weapon. And I think it's just an interesting way to set up that 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 entire scene. And, and of course, it does also take away from Karimbe, who has an arm that he can't use. Karimbe cannot do it. Uh, Bond stands in literally as being sort of the little platform for Karimbe. And he shows himself to be the one who's pretty much, he's, he's the training wheels on the bike going on <laughs> through this entire thing, making sure like he's going to make sure it's going to happen the way that it has to happen. And so you, you see him just doing that in a very physical way rather than say a verbal way and that goes in a sense against what the like, like you were saying the novel says right the novel where it's Karim Bay that's like okay come on Bond like you know gotta gotta get you hyped up t- for the kill here it's Bond utilizing his hands rather than his words sort of setting the stage for Karim Bay. Uh, John you mentioned uh, off mic uh, uh, something that you noticed about this gun assembly that I think brings a real modernity to it. You want to talk about that for a second? Yeah, there's there seems to be a couple of missing frames there. We're do a little mm-hmm. jump cut in the middle of the assembly of the gun, which threw me for a moment. I thought maybe it was just something wrong with the file I was watching, but uh, no, it's in the movie. And, and what do you think? I mean, why why do this? Just to add a little extra oomph to the moment, or I, I think so. I think that. Peter Hunt is one of the most modern directors working at the time, and he he was cl- clearly influenced by what Godard was was doing in terms of just how you can accelerate something, and you don't have to worry about matching continuity. And so I find that that, plus lots of jump cuts in fight scenes to create a harder impact, all that kind of stuff is really wonderful. That 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 he's just embracing that plasticity of the medium and just saying I'm, I'm going to just keep this thing moving fast and I'm going to give it as much energy as I possibly can this is going to be the most energetic assembly of a gun from the same angle you know that anybody has ever seen up to this point yeah absolutely and, and again it's always important to remember that like the style and the techniques that we see today they have their inception in other places and so I think it's this this idea of embracing different approaches, styles, technology of the time, but also doing it with intention. It's not simply doing it for the sake of being artistic. It's, as you say, for it to speed things up or to have a certain level of of a punch to a scene. It's really trying to understand the dynamics of cinematic action. How do we make things visually interesting and having an impact because there's a lot of boring stuff that can happen in terms of like spy work right or things that bond can do so how do we make it enticing for the viewer i guess we should also say that equally modern is the use of this uh escape hatch which comes from fleming's book right it's marilyn monroe's mouth not anita ekberg but in a postmodern touch, <laughs> there's a plug. This is a, this is Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman's other movie, and so they're 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 looking right at it. Uh, and it's Anita Ekberg who is married to Rick Van Nutter, who will show up as Felix Leiter in two more movies and Thunderball. And um, there's just there's something 
I don't know. There's something postmodern about it. I mean, it's one thing if it was Marilyn Monroe. Okay, it's it's even weirder that it's actually a movie produced by the same producers of the Bond film, <laughs> and their name is right there if you look right there on the on the poster. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a nice touch actually. I think it's it's fun uh, to have that little comment in there about their own film. I and I love the scene in general. Before we get we get looking through a scope again, so we get that again, mm-hmm. which everybody knows I love. And this time it's infrared, which I guess probably is a pretty, you know, how many times have we seen infrared in a film before this? Any? Is this the first time maybe? I don't know. That's a but good that would question. have been some high tech stuff back then. Well, and we're in sure. color too, right? So, mm-hmm. that, yeah, that we should do a Google search and see when the first mm-hmm. color infrared mm-hmm. POV shows up in movies. Right. This might This might be it. It might be one more spot of innovation. But it feels even more significant that, it's the shot in a Bond film, right? Mm-hmm. Like it gives us almost like a version of the gun barrel yeah. sequence, even <laughs> though it's a little bit different. And then you could say like the color red, yes, it's infrared. But like when we look at the blood coming down on on the gun barrel, by the end of it, it would be red and you would be looking out through it. Mm-hmm. And I also find it incredibly interesting that we see that shot when Bond looks through it, but we also see it when Krim Bay holds the rifle, which I always think is really interesting. Like whose point of view do we get? And I expect to see Bond's point of view um, throughout the films, but to see Krim Karim Bay's point of view, I thought was just really interesting as well. It's funny that you mentioned that kind of shifting point of view, which I've got something to say, but I'll wait until we get to Tanya later on. But yeah, this idea of the flexibility of moving the narrative, moving the visual image to wherever it's the most interesting. Mm-hmm. That's the technique that Somerset Mom used in a lot of his books, especially in the, like in The Magician. It always goes to whoever is in the most interesting spot in the narrative, that's where we're gonna place the point of view. And it's, it, it allows amazing storytelling freedom and in the hands of somebody who knows what they're doing, it can really create a, an amazing dynamic movie. In the hands of somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, it <laughs> creates confusion, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, and before we, before I, one, my one last thing I want to say about Call Me Buona <laughs> um, is that uh, Harry Saltzman was initially approached for their second film, the second Eon film. Uh, one of his assistants said there's these four guys called the Beatles, and mm-hmm. they're really uh, becoming really popular. Maybe we should use them in a movie. And Harry Saltzman said, why, why would I make a movie about four guys with long hair when I've got Bob Hope? So it was it was not long after that United Artists put up the money for a little number called A Hard Day's Night, which made a lot more money than Call Me Buona. Yeah. But we'll get our shot at the Beatles in the next movie, right? Yes, we will. With earmuffs. Yes. Can we circle back to the poster as well? Yeah, if yeah, we're, sure. if, we're, if we're If we're doing like a whole circle back thing. Yeah, you bet. Um, because I know that you gave sort of like a very sort of like literal reading, but when I was looking at it, I started to think of like a whole bunch of metaphors, right? Uh, different ways that I could understand this poster, maybe intended, maybe not. Uh, I'm an academic who looks at representation, so sure. I can just sort of, you know, pontificate here. But I think the first thing thinking about like this idea of having the picture of a woman and her mouth open and having the villain come out of it, the first thing that I thought about was Tatiana Romanova, that she's been sent to lie to bond 
right? Um, to seduce him. And maybe sort of like the opening mouth with the villain coming out could be reflective of the evil intention of a woman sent to seduce him. And that there's a sexual dimension to the open mouth of a woman. Um, and this is something that the pair discuss like a couple minutes later. That's right. right? There's, there's sort of like a phallic dimension when it comes to like your mouth. It, you know, I think my mouth is too large. And he's like, it's the right size for me. And I'm like, phallic right here. Right. Like and there's a lot going on. So initially that's sort of one thing that I was thinking of when I watched it. And then I started to think about how the image itself predates the rise of women and, and in particular women who sing on the title tracks. These women become the women who open their mouth. They become the sirens of Bond and they often uh, issue warnings about Bond or the villains. And so I think that women in the vocalization of women is something that's really interesting that happens in, 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 in the musical front that will be happening in the next film and moving on. But then like when the man is killed, Bond comments that the woman should have kept her mouth shut, which, you know, I could take that like literally like, okay, sure. The poster should have stayed shut. But like, to me, it also has a bit of like a sexist dimension to it. Like in a patriarchal society, <laughs> women think? are told, yeah, <laughs> women are told to be seen and not heard. And so like, I was watching this and like my synapses were just firing off where I'm like Romanova, women, sexism, all sort of put together. But I will say that this is so memorable to me. Like when I think of From Russia With Love, I think of this poster, I think of the man climbing out and I think about him getting, getting killed. There's something just that remains iconic about this image. And I don't know if they intended all of these layers of meaning, but I, I certainly am reading all of that. Well, it's, you know, the between, although the quip of keeping her mouth shut is exclusive to the film, the idea of the poster with the escape through the mouth and Tanya saying, I think my mouth is too big, all that is straight out of the book. And so the screenwriters were smart enough to pick up on those things, on that imagery and, and include it, not, not excise it, you know. Mm -hmm. So we give some credit to Fleming, uh, who we know uh, is not a stranger to sexist notions, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> uh, John, would you, did you want to say something about the about Karim Bay's two sons that go and ring the bell to start off all of this uh, excitement? Well, we we could talk about a couple of things with that. First is are the, it's it's meant like this moment where the sons walk up is meant to be this little ratcheting of tension for a moment, mm -hmm. this little tension and release before the action happens. I, I find it odd that Karen Bay seems to be so concerned about it, considering he knows what's about to happen. And I would also think Bond would know, but it's fine. It, it It's just a nice little beat there with the, for a second we're tense and, and think something dangerous might occur. But then when the sons walk up, one of them stops and turns right. And I swore that was Connery. When I was watching this, that looks exactly like Sean Connery to me. And then when he walks away, he even has that kind of, gate that connery has and i don't know i freeze I, I i did a screen cap of it and sent it to you and we're not sure could be bob simmons we're kind of guessing that maybe it was bob simmons yeah as the uh, uh son on the right that turns and looks but i don't know but it kind of it weirded me out and i wondered if it was one of those things where they maybe shot it dark and thought that they could get away with it uh, and actually have connery double in there for that for him but it's not uh anyway it's it was just something that struck me as i was watching the scene and i'm not sure who does the fall but i know that the stuntman the actor that they thought was going to do 
the fall that they hired to play Krilenko because he was going to take the fall chickened out at the last minute. And they had to hmm. find somebody else to take that fall. Who knows? Bob Simmons may have been hanging around and maybe he did it. Yeah. I'm not sure. But it was about a 40-foot fall into a, a into a catcher of boxes. And the actor said the last minute he wasn't going to do it. And it made Ter- Terrence Young very unhappy, apparently. Sure. Although, like, when I was watching it, I was thinking about the fall and how I wanted it to be different. Like it was shot through like the red scope and mm. like the shot and let's go. Uh, and I expected the fall to happen at that moment, but to like take us away from the scope shot, to bring us into this other shot, to show the performer turning kind of towards the camera. And then you see them looking down like, uh-huh. <laughs> oh crap. Like you see <laughs> Right. And I was like, what am I watching? You know, like, and I feel like this film uh, eventually when you get to like the inferno at the end with the fire and it's just like what's happening i don't think it's supposed to explode this much you know it's so supposed to be this fiery like i feel as though like there's moments of like actual danger that i sense and this is one of those moments where i'm like ooh, like maybe we just should have just left it at a certain point but but yeah i i, I always have a question about like the way that we see the actor and the horror on their face and i'm like ooh. <laughs> yeah yeah, I mean, this was this was one of the more dangerous Bond films as we mm-hmm. as we get into the third act. You know, we'll be talking about the acts, a couple of accidents where 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 people almost died. Very important mm-hmm. people to the production almost died. And part of the reason for moving back to England was because it was just hard to manage everything. Uh, although once they got back to Scotland, they had some terrible things happen. So, it, you know, the move didn't necessarily help. But, yeah, I think it's part of that kind of uh, ragtag nature of the movie. They've got more money than they had for Dr. No. The stakes are higher. They know they've got to deliver more. Maybe they still don't have quite enough to do everything, you know, perfectly and, and, and safely. Well, should we move to the hotel room? Are we Any, any oh, other thoughts sure. about this stuff? Yeah. Hotel room's good for me. So I know that John, without even having to tell me, was really happy that there's no Vic Flick on the guitar as Bond Oof. goes into his hotel room. Such a relief. Yeah. Uh, the pervasive constant guitar that doesn't score the scene. Yeah, I'm just glad that, that that didn't occur here just for kicks. Instead, we get a beautiful new piece of John Barry music mm-hmm. for inspecting your hotel room. So that was uh, actually works really nicely. And it's a it's a beautifully lit set. It's already romantic and and soft and sexy as, as if we don't know what's going to happen. We're being clued in uh, or at least given, given some clues that, that something else is going to happen besides bond checking out his hotel room and taking a shower. But it's so like, there's, there's something about this that I find so fascinating. Like I love the mundane. So bond walks into his hotel room and he kicks off his shoes and I'm like, Oh, he's not going to untie them. He's just going to kick them off. Sure. And then we see him loosen his tie. But when he takes off his jacket and goes for his like gun holster, he's actually removing it quite aggressively. Like get this thing off my body. And so it's, it started me thinking like maybe he's uncomfortable, right? Like he's removing all of like the artifice or the artifacts that make him visually distinctive as Bond and he's just 
stripping them down in order to take a shower, which heats up amazingly quickly. Just wanted to throw that. Like, like <laughs> what kind of water heaters do they use at this hotel? Because like, awesome. But then <laughs> there's he, no like, water. It's just it's just, it just a steam just, shower. Just steam. But then when he orders breakfast, oh, first of all, my favorite, absolute favorite telephone in any Bond film is that like grayish purple telephone. I swear I have nail polish in that color. So every time I see that phone, I'm like, that is my phone. But then his order just sort of, and and I'm wondering your thoughts on this because like he's ordering figs and yogurt, which could be reflective of the place, but also it's not like what you would think of like a typical British breakfast, like probably not figs and yogurt. And then he orders his coffee very black. And as somebody who studies gender, um, I oftentimes think about like the gendered connotations of the food that we eat, right? And so this idea of drinking black coffee, it's often coded as being like a very masculine um, um, aspect. You know, coffee is not only just fuel for a hard day's work, but this is coffee that is going to be very strong. And the stronger you take your coffee is is sort of a reflection of your own strength. And so like, there was a lot going in on him sort of like taking off the gentleman artifice and then like making sure that he would have like enough fuel for the next day so that he could be strong. But this was like a moment to relax and to sort of take it all off. Um, in order to rest and recover. So like he was on the clock, like outside of his hotel room, but in his hotel room, he starts to ease into being, I don't know, bomb the human being. He grabs that briefcase without even looking at it. It is amazing how mm-hmm. he gets a hold of that briefcase. And so, he, the, you know, the guy is, he really is, like you said, he's very assertive in how he smoothly seizes that thing and yet isn't even looking down where his hand is. And John, what kind of coffee did Bond order earlier? What kind did he order? Did when he was with Turkish coffee is what right. Karen Bay orders. Yeah, and, for him. And, but how yeah. did Bond? How did Bond want it? Didn't isn't he the one who oh, said he shoot. wanted it medium sweet when he was hanging yeah, out? Yeah, medium with, sweet. When he was hanging out with Kareem, but now it's very black. He's on his own, but I tr- guess. But oh. Turkish coffee is, I, I believe, is sweet by nature. Like you have to order a certain level of sweetness or. They'll give it to you too sweet. So he's actually, I think, taking it down a notch still when he ordered the Turkish coffee. Because Turkish coffee, I believe, is if I'm, I'm going back and remembering what we talked about, is brewed with sugar, mm. um, sort of like a Cuban, a, a Cuban coffee. And he wants none of that for but, breakfast. Zero. Right. And, Zero. And as a person that's worked in coffee a little bit or taken a lot of coffee orders in my life, saying very black is like a bit of an eye roller. <laughs> like, I turn around like, yeah, very black. I'll make it blacker for you. Sure. Um, <laughs> like, I, how exactly is it supposed to be more black? Does he mean too strong? Like, so strong it tastes like shit? I, that might be what he means. That might be... Lisa, what, what you're talking about, he's like, I'm so masculine, I don't even like my top coffee to taste good. Make you, it terrible. I'll drink it all day. Do you think it's a I, roast know? term? Like how there's I like light roast, medium roast, dark roast, and maybe very black is dark roast? Like he wants the French roast, that, the nasty, oily <laughs> coffee beans, like French roast, maybe. Give me your oiliest version, <laughs> please. <laughs> what if, if the beans are oily, that's what I want. Make yeah. the spinal tap question, how much more black? <laughs> Right. No, no he wants it at 11. Yeah. <laughs> in the book, Bond steps out uh, on the veranda to stare at the moon, and the moon is so bright that it apparently blinds him because when he hears a noise, he turns to find Tanya, but his eyes can't quite adjust quickly enough to see the source of that noise. It's a little different here in that we get this shot of Tanya slipping into bed uh, naked, 
in a body stocking. But Lisa, is that from anybody's point of view? Is that just our audience point of view or does Bond actually see that? I thought it was his point of view looking through the curtains. That's how I read it. Like he was he was out there because he wasn't going to go through the one the front door. He was going to go through the side door. And so I assumed it was his point of view again looking at a, a, a woman naked mm-hmm. um jumping into bed, which opens up like a whole bunch of things about like future women in pre-credit sequences being in sil- shadow and silhouette naked. Like for me that's a precursor to a whole bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I thought it was Bond's point of view. I yeah. I could be wrong. Yeah. Well, it's definitely obfuscated by the by the sheer curtains and everything. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 definitely a point of view, uh, and and maybe we simply are, we share his his point of view. Uh, I, I guess the censors still had a lot of trouble with that shot, and or the mm-hmm. filmmakers did had trouble with that shot and the censors. But I guess they finally convinced them she was in a body stocking, and they got away with it. Uh, but I'm I'm. I just should mention that this whole scene that we're about to talk about is the scene that I guess they use to test James Bond actors huh? still to this day, right? Yep. And it's, it is, it raises, I mean, there's so much here. It raises so many questions as to what is the, the identity of Bond, right? What do you need to be proficient in or proficient at? And apparently it is seducing a woman, gaining information out of her, and really sort of distilling down this notion that what really spy culture is about, whether you like it or not, um, is about like sex and seduction and 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 getting, you know, information out of your target. So uh, this is this is the scene that everybody seems to be testing for in order to, and it's and it's kind of hard because like it's in order to match, is it the Connery standard or is it in order to convey um, this level of, of virility and charm and ability uh, on screen um, in your own way. I don't know if, you, if it's a comparison always back to Connery, but it's interesting that this is seen as being like so iconic and so central that this is how we test future bonds. And, you know, it's also that reacting to the thought that there's somebody else in the room and you don't know who they are and so you have to be alert and on guard and you have to do all of that without overacting. So I suppose mm-hmm. that's something they probably also watch for to see how the, the actor is going to handle that very difficult um, non-verbal cue. So this first shot of Tanya, I wanted to see what you thought of it, Lisa. It's, it strikes me as so playful the way that she just sort of pops up, pops the sheets and it's a really hard cut to her and she's got this look on her face. I don't know. Did, did you notice that? There's a very, I don't want to say childlike element, but that's yeah. how I kind of read it with her hair being up and with the little bow thing around her, her mm-hmm. neck, which is kind of like she's a gift, but it also kind of looks a little bit like youthful. Like you see this notion of her being, having a playful side, right? And playing up this notion of like, I'm your surprise. Here I am. And, you know, I'm here to seduce you because I'm like obsessed with you. Uh, like it, it really, she conveys, I think, perfectly that energy. Um, and I think that takes Bond a little bit off guard. Like he's expecting her, but I didn't think he expected like this much enthusiasm from yeah. her in that moment. Yeah, it certainly th- throws as an audience member, it throws it throws me off every time. In, I mean, in a good way, but it surprises me. Like maybe she's connecting to this notion, like Rosa Club said, it's a delightful duty and you will be shot. Like she threatens this woman and says, you have to go and like seduce Bond, sleep with Bond. I don't care if you like it. 
you know, and, and that's the, the impression that we're left with is that she's scared in a sense for her life because if she doesn't do it, she's going to die. And then we see her come in and we're like, wow, like either you truly are in it and you're really attracted to Bond, which it turns out that's a component part of it. But she's really, really committed to mm-hmm. um, this particular role. And, and it's it's it, it, it compared to where we saw her beforehand. It is it is a deviation. Yeah. And and each of them are playing this act right she has to be convincing that she's crazy about him that she's obsessed with him he has to pretend that he believes that Mm -hmm. she is even though he doesn't so they're both doing this big fiction dance you know and only we the audience know that there's something even bigger which is the specter triple blind Mm -hmm. but i think about this scene and it, it it becomes you know, distressing and kind of mind bending to me. Like if I don't think about it and I just sort of sit back, relax, enjoy the movie, check my brain at the door, um, they're young and healthy and they're both attractive. And so let's just go with the, the romance of the beautiful set and all that other stuff. But as soon as you start to think about it, it's a really strange situation that these two people are willing to put themselves through. And it's strange because like, Again, is this a really a delightful duty? And there's many times throughout the Bond films where Bond has said, like, I really didn't get any pleasure from this. This is for queen and country. I'm doing it because it's my job. And it really draws it. To me, it always draws into question this notion of like, we think about spies having sex and it's like sex menage and all this stuff. But there are so many cases where it's weird and it's forced and there's so much um, deception going on and it becomes sort of like another skill or a tool that you're utilizing. And, and I, I mean, I know we're going to talk about like the, the filming sex shot, but the fact that it's so devoid of consent, like Sean Connery's bond has not consented. We don't know if Tatiana Romanova has consented or not. Like she's, she kind of knows like a quarter of this plan, but she's, out of the loop in so many ways. And so this idea of for, for spy culture, filming two people having sex without at least one of their consent, which by the way, like that's a crime, just throwing it out there. Like you can't do that. Um, but the way that it's shown is just being like a natural part of spy culture and it gets repeated. I mean, when you think about uh, Pierce Brosnan's bond in die another day in the hotel in Hong Kong, sort of slamming through the glass, like being watched. Like it's, it becomes such a key part. Like you're always being watched, but it just, it always makes me cringe during these intimate moments. And I always want to stress when we talk about consent, if a man and a woman are having sex, both of them need to consent. Like men need to consent too. And I think this is, even though the Connery area has a lot of questionable things about sexual consent, there's a lot of sexual violence. It's also important that he is a consenting and a full partner um, in this. Now, maybe he thinks he knows that this is going on. Like, I don't know what's going on in his mind or in his head, but I don't know. It, It just, it sheds a different type of light here on the act that is taking place. And to see Rosa Club just smoking her cigarette, watching closely. And I'm like, oh, cringe. Especially since she has expressed attraction to Romanova. Um, and in the novels, she expresses a lot of attraction to Romanova. So, yeah, there's just there's a, there's a lot of layers in all of this. Like, apparently, uh, I, I have a couple of things I don't want to forget to mention. One is that apparently when Bond says, my name is James Bond and sits down and pulls back the covers, it got this huge laugh from the audience. Like they were all in for this kind of he can he is. He has absolutely no 
no censors, no compunction. He can say who he is and he can jump right into bed and everybody was like, ha, 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 that's who James Bond is. But on, on the other hand, the culture at the time was so aware of all of these spy scandals that were going on that were sexual spy scandals, one of which would ultimately almost bring down the British government. So there's, there's that current thing happening that we probably don't feel the same connection with we probably see this scene if we were watching it today and never seen the movie before you're like oh, i've seen this scene a million times or some version of this but mm -hmm. we probably don't think about how that was a significant tool in spycraft of the day and that was potentially gonna could bring down governments i think it was monica germana said they're both being pimped out by the governments and that's an interesting way of looking at it accurate <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm just going to say, any thoughts on the way that it was being shot? Like you see sort of from the other side of the mirror and it pulls back and you hear the camera playing. Any thoughts on the way that it's... Because I actually think that the creepiness of it also has to... It's not just the fact that it's happening, but in the way that it's being shot or the way that it's being shown. Uh, yes. It's dimmer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and in fact, before before we get to there, because that, that radical change of point of view that we see with the two of them through the, through the mirror, which weirdly enough... Terrence Young said that he got a laugh because he had added a shot of somebody mopping their brow, but that shot doesn't exist. So he, I don't know whether he got confused or whether he shot something and then took it out. But um, that brings me back to the point of view thing I just wanted to mention, which is that her point of view of Bond, like when we see Connery in a low angle shot looking up at him, I mean, it's pretty much how she sees James Bond. And I think that we spoke earlier about how Kareem got a point of view shot through the scope. And this is, I think, Terrence Young following the lead that Fleming sets out because in an amazing moment in the book, from just like one paragraph to the next, suddenly we're in her head. And mm -hmm. we're in Bond's head and he's thinking about all this stuff and then boom, next paragraph. She was thinking how she can do this and was he this and was he that? And, and that is bold writing. And I think that what movies can do just like books, is they can move us from different points of view. And even though we're kind of in Bond's head in this scene, we're also in Tanya's head. And we look at Sean Connery in this low-angle, powerful, gorgeous shot, and we are invited to say, yeah, maybe, maybe it will be okay since, you know, he's this gorgeous thing. And then, I think, you know, to make it all creepier is we do have that pulling back on the other side of the glass. After we'd just seen this kind of, I don't know whether it's a tender shot or it's a shot of connection of their two hands, yes. you know, clasping, which I think is there's something about that that's really wonderfully intimate and kind of, you know, not what you would expect as, a, as the shot to try to suggest something, a connection between these two characters. So maybe it's almost saying, yeah, there's actually something really going on here. And then it's just completely shattered by that really lascivious uh, pullback on the other side of the glass. And yeah, Rosa Club smoking. Is that Red Grant running the camera? I, I was, John, did, did, could, what did you think? Oh, God, I didn't notice it being Red Grant. No, but uh, Lisa, I feel like I got to look at it again. I don't think it was Red Grant. I'm wondering if it's the actor who appears in this film who played General Gogol. Oh, Moresni? I, I don't know. I, I think he's got a head of hair. So I don't think it's I don't think oh, it's him. I thought it was somebody with like a bit of hair no. that was brown. It's definitely not I'm looking at it now. It's 
Man, I don't know. The, okay, so you can see his. He looks at her at the see, end of the shot. Does he? Yeah, kind of during the dissolve. But you can see his reflection first. And you can see his hairline. And he kind of looks like Red Grant in the reflection. But when you pull back, it looks like an older man. Yeah, um, it's not him. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say definitively that that's not uh, Red Grant. It's not Red Grant. All right. Well, the mystery deepens. <laughs> so apparently this was something that they did have to negotiate with the censors over and young maintains that this movie met with a lot more resistance by censors because of the emphasis on sex at the time and particularly difficult in america he said he, he you know he left after this to go make mall flanders and he said he had to make 87 cuts for the american censors uh when in those last days of the production code so I guess it's pretty steamy stuff. The idea is still pretty <laughs> disturbing. You know, just as you, you're talking, you're like anything else. I think lighting matters. Like the fact that you talked about like returning to the hotel room and it's kind of like warm, everything's well lit, et cetera, et cetera. And even when we think about like the shooting sequence beforehand, there were like the shadows coming through whatever the glass was with that random pattern, right? Like mm -hmm. the use of lighting is supposed to be signifying like doing things in the shadows, having comfort at home. But like... The two of them are in a very well-lit room making love. Um, but like on the other side, it looks like, I don't want to say like orangey, yellowish, green. Like it just looks grosser on the yeah. other side oh, yeah, based on like right. the lighting, the color. Like it's not just creepy because the people are doing whatever they're doing, but I think it's coded and in, in being shot in such a way that it looks like they're kind of like in a cave or something like that, you know, like just it, it, ugh. I don't I don't know how to describe it, but it just it feels gross on the other side. Yeah, and in the book it feels super gross too. It's sweaty and hot and dank, mm -hmm. and he's able to describe the environment in a way that we don't really get that in the movie. But yeah, it's a pretty gross peep show thing going on here. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, from this unsavory moment, we thankfully dissolve away to this really big, beautiful postcard shot of uh, the Hagia Sophia in the background, Santa Sophia at the time. And we've got a series of kind of travelogue shots that follow this and that kind of add air to what was otherwise a creepy, sweaty spot. Three shots, one with the Hagia Sophia, which is where they're headed, and then two other shots that, that feature the Blue Mosque, which is the one that has the six minarets. In the second one, we get to see Tanya kind of appear out of the crowd and head up these stairs and we soon find out she's being followed by this guy with the beret. I guess this all, we, we, we did set this up in the conversation when Bond was, when they were kissing, and, and I, I want to do circle back to that. They kiss, your mouth is not, my, I think my mouth's too big, it's not too big for me, they have this kind of romantic kiss, the music swells, and then Bond instantly starts asking about the lector, and how can we get it, and what's the plan going to be, and where can we meet, and so this walk that Tanya is taking has been set up in the previous uh, scene as a kind of action reaction. So if we're paying attention, we know sh this must be the meeting to the rendezvous with Bond. That's a nice way to give us just a hint of exposition. Like we know they're going to have business to talk about between them. Bond brings it up and she, so we, all we need is really the suggestion of it. And then we get back to what the scene's really about. Uh, pretty quickly yet we do still get this action reaction effect between the two scenes so we didn't have to finish the scene 
the next morning with them in bed talking about what they were going to do. You know, that kind of like ham fisted style writing where, uh, where you need the transition to happen uh, in this sort of tidy way. This, in this case, it's more shrewd. Yeah, uh, Lisa. So you know when he's trying to get that information out of her, like in this romantic clinch. What do you make of like that back and forth between the two of them, and how they're are they kind of staking out their positions of power? Like, is she gonna not give him? What's she willing to give up and not give up in these in this moment, both both physically and in terms of information? Is she being sure that she can put the hooks into him romantically before? I just wonder what you think about her as in terms of her, both her ambitions, maybe even for herself later down the line um, as an escape route or her serving the interests of the state all mixed up with this romantic business. You know, I feel as though you can tell by the way that he's acting. So, I mean, when they're kissing and his eyes are open and looking down and the way that it's shot, you can tell that he's like, kiss, kiss, but really he's there to be asking this information. And when I watched, I think I was struck by, I guess, the comment that women should keep their mouth shut that he had earlier, but now he's asking her to keep that mouth open in many, Mm -hmm. in in multiple ways Mm -hmm. here, I Mm -hmm. guess. He expects access to her mind, access to her body. Um, and she is somebody who is in this scene has expressed interest in sharing her body, um, but not necessarily the secrets of her mind. And I feel as though there's a bit of a cat and a mouse game happening between, between the two of them, but it's really Bond who's pursuing and she's sort of holding out, holding out or holding off, uh, with this information. And, I, I don't want to say it feels like typical, like heterosexual dynamics, but in many ways it does. This idea that the man is going to pursue, the woman is the pursuee. And and yeah, that's, I mean, that's how I really read it. I think she's playing her part and, you know, giving up very limited information. And and it's it's also interesting because like when we think about the role that sex plays, there's this notion that when again, in heterosexual relationships, when a man has a sex, has sex with a woman, it could, it could just be sex. But there's this assumption and stereotype out there that when a woman has sex with a man, she falls in love with him immediately and becomes very clingy. And, and, and like, there's, there's a level of intimacy, et cetera, et cetera. And maybe that's something that he was trying to promote. I mean, this is the reason why Bond has Bond girls, right? You seduce them, you get them on your side, you get the information that you need from them because these women will be loyal to you if they have had sex with you. And and maybe that notion of holding her hand and trying to be maybe a little bit more romantical about it um, is a way to try to promote intimacy so that she will trust and she will give up all of the information. And so using the access to the body as sort of a, a, a segue into the access to her mind, maybe. Do you think that she's playing a longer game? Do you think that that she is ambitious enough to, to realize that this may be a way out of Russia or, or do you think she plans to go right back to her old job as soon as this mission is over with? Is there an opportunity for her, whether she falls in love with this guy or not, to get out? I mean, I'd love to think that she was thinking along those terms, especially after being threatened. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean? When someone threatens your life, you're like, hmm, maybe I want to rethink things. Yeah, Crisis yeah. tends to change people. I just don't know if the film gives us enough to qualify that. Right, because I've always read it as she ends up kind of falling for Bond and 
she's willing to go along. I feel like she's just willing to go along with pretty much anything after that. So I don't know. I, I want, I would love to read it as having an exit plan, but I don't know if that's what okay. happens. All right. Well, uh, I would be curious to see what other people think. Mm-hmm. Here's a, here's a plug for the Facebook page. If you have a, a thought about whether Tanya's got longer term plans than this, I would love to hear about that. Cause we've, we've talked about it a little bit with Monica too, that this question of, of whether or not Tanya is an ambitious character. Mm-hmm. I should mention this guy in the black beret who's following Tanya. Uh, apparently, Terrence Young is very was very frustrated at himself for casting yet another guy with a mustache who looks like Pedro Amandares. And <laughs> this black beret guy, as we will see in future episodes, is going to cause all sorts of problems for the for the production company and what they do with this character. And I'll just sort of leave that out as a tease. Uh, but he is definitely following her, and we know, and has been since uh, early on in the story. Is he working for Spectre, or is he working for the Russians? We're not quite sure. I think, right? Do we know who he's working for, Mister Beret? He, uh, I can't remember. We we've seen him before, haven't we? We have seen him before. Yeah, we know he's following. And we know he's on the opposition. Was he sitting he at the is... table? Is he is he the guy? He's not Ben's. Ben's is a different guy. So oh, we've geez. got, and who also has a mustache, I think. <laughs> so if you're confused, it's probably okay that we're confused and not sure. We're going to get the answer in well, the next. Somebody's not confused and they're really mad at us right now. Well, no, in the next, confused. well, in the next few minutes, we're going to get, it's going to become <laughs> very clear who this guy is working for. But I'm not right. sure whether we know for sure whether he is for working for the Russians or working for uh, Spectre. Because at the table, it's the it's Benz and Krilenku and the guy that looks like Stalin or looks like uh, Khrushchev. And I think that's – Beret guy isn't there. So anyway, that brings us to the end of these minutes. Uh, Lisa, do you have any final thoughts? Did we forget anything? Uh, no, this was definitely – a good chunk of minutes there was a lot going on different places different scenes different relationships i think a lot is set up and established from friendships to um a potential romance to the creepiness of club (laughs) you know and some of the mystery that that's gonna be coming from from you know being followed um so yeah, I, I thought it was just it was a, as I was watching, I'm like, ooh, this was a good chunk. <laughs> <laughs> They've made so, us wait almost an entire hour for Bond and Tanya to meet. So from a screenplay structure point of view, this is a mm-hmm. big turn of the screws, you know, no pun intended with with this. <laughs> John, any final thoughts on your end about these? No. No, not really. Okay. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for taking the time to join us it's always a joy having you on the show you you do amazing work in bond scholarship and people are very lucky to be able to take your classes thank you it was it was awesome i had a blast where do we find you on the social medias uh you can find me dr lisa funnel on twitter instagram and facebook and in case you're interested in finding my books just google me on amazon.com and they'll pop up as well Oh, by the way, I read your essay, I Know Where You Keep Your Gun. 
that showed up <laughs> in my uh, academic feed. And it's really great. It's a, and I, I want to find that, find that people, find that essay. Google, I know where you keep your gun. It's really cool. It's a great mm-hmm. article. That was my first like big, I mean, I've, I had a journal article before it, but that's like the first big one. And I will tell you people that I've worked with academically in bond they always go back to that one like everything else i've I've written no one ever reads that but they're like this is the one that they cite all the time and i'm very proud of this article so it comes from a position of being mad at casino royale because it was different and then using that as a stepping stone to analyze what was going on and on the other end of it coming out as a huge fan and lover of the film so there's an emotional journey with that with that article that's great that's great All right, so that's going to do it for this week on 007 by 7. We'll see you next week.